So let's start off with this, right? This is the this is the genius of women book by Janice Coplin, right? <clears throat> Let me think of what she's saying here, right? It pushed so many aside that the path really did seem clear. Many of the challenges women face now are subtle but insidious, starting with the images received endlessly in popular culture. You think you're being entertained, and all of a sudden you realize that the underlying misogyny isn't entertaining at all. The whole culture is sending you a message that rejects the idea of women being smart or strong or powerful. And whether you're a... Hey, Buff. Uh, yet. Yet. ...genius woman, or just admire those who are, you have to fight back. When I first saw the Disney movie The Little Mermaid many years ago, I stormed out of the theater at the end in a total rage. My husband claims that I ranted so vociferously that people on the street turned to stare at me. Well, good since I was protesting the message of the movie that a woman didn't need to be heard. I can't believe that the mermaid wasn't allowed to speak, I roared to my then brand new husband. Hey, Doss. No. It was a Disney fairy tale. It's supposed to be frivolous, he said calmly. It's not just frivolous, it's dangerous, I said. In case you've forgotten, red-headed mermaid Ariel needs to get the kiss of true love from Prince Eric in order to live on land. She makes a deal to give up her voice so she can woo and win him. She can't sing. She can't talk. All she can do is look beautiful to get her prince. Could there be any more blatant way of telling girls to shut up and look beautiful? The movie was hugely successful. Hey, Doss? No. Do you think that's true? you think that was a message? the key to the flow was well, just a symbol of, of looking for the key to the flow uh -huh. well what, what's what's the symbol the mer the aerial or what the mermaid or what you know the mermaid she's trying to find the flow yeah. what's the secret to, to, to thing getting in the flow why is it why can't she speak No, I said, why can't she speak in the movie? Oh, I don't know. I don't think the movie's about that. Unless you're, unless you're looking at it from the, from the male-female point of view. Yeah, that does You know what I mean? Yeah, okay, cool. All right, ready? And Disney built a whole franchise of games and videos and music around Ariel, and then launched a Disney princess line to further commodify all the ways little girls could be taught to focus on things that will never help them fulfill any potential. My fury over the Little Mermaid made such an impression on my husband that he still mentions it from time to time. It has become part of our family legend. When I met up recently with my friend Shayna to talk about women and genius, I told her that I was starting to wonder what effect the Disney princesses had on girls' expectations for themselves. It does. 
Shana, a savvy and energetic entrepreneur. If if you try to look at superior and inferior, male and female, then it did have a very negative effect. But uh, you know, it's 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 the same as those myths about climbing the beanstalk and and looking for the golden goose. And all. These are all metaphors of the fact that we're all looking for for the flow. Yeah, that's it. I was thinking too, like you know, uh, but there's also movies like Laura Croft, Tomb Raider that depict that nowadays that depict the woman as an action hero. But is that any better? I mean, yeah, it's breaking people out of the idea that women have to be passive and stuff, so it's breaking people out of that that uh, paradigm. But at the same time, though, it's if you're still looking at the male and female, okay, now you're like, oh yeah, women can kick ass too. Yeah, but you're still saying women. You're still not, you're still believing in the dichotomy. Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, that's true who now runs her own fitness company, is usually sunny and upbeat, but suddenly a look of mortification crossed her face. Did I ever tell you what happened to me with the little mermaid? She asked in a whisper. I shook my head no. I'd never told Shana my story of movie rage, so what was her experience? Go for it, I said. She bit her lip as if she were about to confess to a jewelry heist, but from her expression, this was considerably worse than being part of Ocean's 8. Shana told me that she was about 10 when the Disney movie came out, she became totally obsessed with Ariel, the heroine mermaid princess. She collected every Ariel doll, action figure, and poster. She carried an Ariel lunchbox to school every day. McDonald's was doing a little mermaid promotion, so she went on a Happy Meal spree to get all the figurines. Cleaning some drawers recently, she had found her long-saved treasure trove of Ariel idolatry. Hey, does? No. I mean, she's looking at it bad because she's thinking that what this one, that this girl was idolizing the idea of being passive and not having a voice, but you're saying no, what she really saw was this idea of wanting the flow. I'm just saying that those are two different ways. Yeah, I know that. I know. I, I, you think I don't get it? Like you're, you're, you're saying that it's about the flow, right? No, I'm not saying it's about the flow. I'm saying there are two different ways of interpreting that story. Okay. And it doesn't? And was horrified. I stared at them, and it finally occurred to me that Ariel is an appalling role model, Shana said, her eyes wide. She wasn't allowed to speak. Can you believe it? A mute mermaid was my idol. I sympathized. Being older, I had skipped the idolatry and gone right to the fury. But I could understand how vexing it was to look back at the palimpsest of a younger self and see it scribbled with bad influences. You seem to have emerged okay, I said. Shana sighed. Thanks, but I was looking at the figurines in that treasure box, and I wondered, what was I thinking? Shayna wasn't the only girl to put the beautiful but dumb, as in mute and speechless, mermaid on a pedestal. Can a mermaid even stand on a pedestal? And the veneration continues. The movie is still popular, streaming on a channel near you, with another generation watching. When I went home and checked the Walmart website, I found dozens of Ariel dolls, some of them with feet and some of them with the webbed tail of a mermaid. Way to hobble a girl. Can't walk and can't talk. A couple of days later, Shayna emailed me that we weren't alone. She had found other warriors in the battle against Ariel. It does? No. The very talented actress Kira Knightley, who has starred in movies from Bend It Like Beckham to Pirates of the Caribbean, had taken a stand, announcing in an extensively retweeted interview that as much as she liked The Little Mermaid, she wouldn't let her three-year-old daughter watch it. I mean, the songs are great, but do not give your voice up for a man, she said on a very popular talk show. Cinderella was also on her no-go list, 
because why care about a princess who waits around for a rich guy to rescue her? The comic actress Mindy Kaling also joined the anti-Ariel squad, explaining that if her daughter wanted to watch the movie when she got bigger, mom would be there with a running commentary from the other side of the feminist fence. You don't have to be mute to attract a man and get all your dreams to come true, she said. Surely some women can get through childhoods sprinkled with sexist fairy tales and still grow up to be doctors and lawyers and astronauts and actresses and... Hey, those? Yeses. On the other hand, why make it so hard? I thought speaking out against Ariel and Cinderella was notably brave of Kira Knightley, who was gorgeous and as thin as a reed, but showed a steel backbone when she reaffirmed her comments as she strolled down the red carpet at a movie premiere. What made it so courageous? The new movie everyone was coming to celebrate starred Knightley and was produced by Disney. Are Kira and Mindy and Shayna and I being excessively picky here, undermining a Disney flick with terrific animation and wonderful songs because of a quibble with the plot? I suppose it's always dangerous to undercut a pop culture icon that has lots of fans, but it's also too easy to give excuses and explanations for why in this particular case, the fatuous depiction of a woman is okay. Women step back from speaking out because we don't want to be accused of sounding shrill or demanding or, a big one for me, ungrateful. But in this case, it's a mistake to say that the fairy tale plot doesn't matter. Overlook it if you want, but when you buy that Ariel doll for your daughter, realize that you're telling her it's okay to be dumb. Hey, does? <clears throat> well, again, that's one way of looking at it. See, when when she was looking for some, for for the prince to catch her up, so that she could be, um, she so she can be caught up by the prince into a wonderful life. See, that's a metaphor. That's a metaphor of wanting to be caught up in the flow, mm. and there's nothing you do to make it happen. But you, you, you have to prepare to be caught up in that flow. See, that's one whole way of interpreting that whole um, show. But the, whole, the other way is to see it as a metaphor for m male against female. Yeah, and also it's again like it's like that movie. Female yeah, yeah, it's it's like that movie that, or it's like I think that, that book or movie that you're talking about with where the woman, where the man grabs a woman and lifts her up, and the guy blushed when he saw that. But it was really. It, it was really a metaphor of her letting go and being caught up in the flow. Any thoughts? Yeah. And you see, the, the, the great thing about art, just like um, this Krista book that, I, that you referred me to, see, great art, you can interpret it from, from, from any number of points of view, depending upon the point of view from which you approach it. So you can always find something in great art to support your particular, your current uh, quality of perception, quality of discernment. Yeah, Grandpa, hopefully if you can, try, try to talk fast, Grandpa. I'm just saying like, no, but you're, you're talking fine. It's just, we don't have too much time. But I was, I was just going to say though, uh, what, what Krishna book are you talking about? Um, subjective evolution. Yeah, and yeah, doesn't? Yeah, I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yep. Disney has heard the complaints of sexism for so long that some of their more... Was that? I see, that was, that's a great book. I keep going back to it. Recent animated movies try to give the female characters more agency, and they get definite kudos for the 2016 Moana. 
the hugely popular Frozen, released a few years earlier, was the first to be co-directed by a woman, and Jennifer Lee helped give the story a more girl-friendly focus than it had in earlier stages of development. As long as the women can all speak, we've come a long way. The kiss of true love that saves the day isn't from the man, who turns out to be the villain, but from the sisters Elsa and Anna, saving each other. Nice. The movie became the highest-grossing animated film of all time, but Disney still had a little hesitancy about a woman's powers. The Princess Elsa has a superpower, but instead of it letting her leap over tall buildings or kill the bad guys, she turns things to ice. Her power hurts people, including her sister, and she has to hide it. The day I saw the new musical based on the movie, I started scribbling some troubling lines on the back of my playbill. We must keep her powers hidden from everyone, Elsa's mother says. I'm afraid of my powers, Elsa says at one point. They look at me and see a monster, she says at another. And then the mantra that both she and her parents repeat, Conceal it. Don't feel it. Don't let it show. Hate those? No. If you're a woman with power or strength, you can't let anyone know about it. You have to cover it up. It makes you think of like somebody who has like bipolar or schizophrenia. Like, don't don't tell anybody. But it can actually be a good thing, you know? Any thoughts? Yeah, well, see, Jesus uh, faced that same thing when people say, said to him, how do you do those things? And he, 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 didn't, he didn't try to hide his power, nor did he take personal credit for it. He just says, I'm just in the flow. He says, it's my father doing it, right? Any thoughts on it? Yeah. The wildly popular song, Let It Go, sung by Adina Menzel in the animated movie, is meant to be the turning point where Elsa stops worrying about hiding and finds her own power. It's a great song, and Menzel is terrific. I feel like that kind of happened to me when I when I kind of, you know, I, I felt like, you know, you might have thought I was crazy with the quadrant, and you didn't understand it, and other people, and, like, I, I tried to, like, just understand the energy part, but then I just finally, recently, just let it go, and I'm like, okay, I'll tell people about the synchronicities I saw. I'll tell people about, you know, any thoughts? Yeah. The result yeah, isn't see, quite... See, this whole thing... Speaks in the heart. Yeah, and, and this whole thing about, you know, we've, in recent times... I, I've uh, kind of given you a rough time about uh, um, do you want to know what I think or do you want to disagree with what I think? See, what I'm doing is I'm kind of pushing you to continue to create your own feathers. So you, 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 don't, you no longer rely on my feathers. You're creating your own feathers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, does it? No. As inspiring as you may hope, Elsa undoes the problems her power has caused, but does it make her heroic? Not really. One of the biggest sellers at the lobby concession stand were the blue gloves that Princess Elsa wore to keep her powers from hurting anyone. When two little girls sitting near me came back from intermission, proudly wearing the gloves, I glared at their mother. Didn't she get it? The message of the gloves was that a powerful woman needs to cover her strengths and hide her magic. I might have said something, but my husband caught my look and grabbed my hand, no doubt remembering my Little Mermaid tirade. Shh, let them enjoy the show, he whispered. I nodded and kept quiet. But the problem is that it's always easier to keep quiet than to stand up and fight a social norm that can be wrong and damaging. A lawyer I know named Amanda lives in a fancy section of Los Angeles and sends her four-year-old to an expensive preschool that prides itself on being forward-thinking and enlightened. When the teacher sent home a note announcing a superheroes and princesses dress-up day the following week, she was stunned and called to complain. The teacher explained that most of the girls were already obsessed with princess costumes, so what was the harm? 
The harm, of course, was in reinforcing a stereotype that lets boys fantasize about having strength and superpowers while girls wallow in tool and tiaras. Hey, Beth. Yeah, well, that certainly is a problem. And, you know, bo that, both of those messages are built into the, those stories. What stories? one that yeah it is it is kind of interesting right like even like halloween like i remember on halloween my, my sister and in the you know brianne the girl who was next door i remember she was dressed up in a little uh you know they're they're dressed up as princesses you know one was Belle from the beauty and the beast the other one was a different princess and i was spider-man and i was going and i remember i was going roar to them and they, they were crying i was like roar like scaring them and they were crying and then I and then I remember I had the video and then I and isn't that funny? Yeah. And then I remember I was kissing Brienne in one of the videos, like I kept kissing her. But any thoughts of that? No. Yeah, that's part of the stereotype, and you see that's very, very appropriate at, at that age for boys to want to be strong and superior, and it's a way of establishing the ego. Yeah, and it's, it's funny and how I was. Culture has ways for... But but why why is it? But I mean, I was was it because that our culture did that, or was that natural that I was like, you know, my Spider Man suit and scaring them, and they were crying, their little princesses crying. Were they were we fulfilling our roles that were being imposed by our parents, maybe by their expectations, or were we doing what ends up becoming further ingrained in culture? Any thoughts? Or both? Yeah, maybe both. But yeah, doesn't. What was I going to do? Amanda asked when we talked about the problem. Keep her home from school? Tell her that all her friends were victims of a sexist social order? We want our kids to be happy and fit in, so we shut up and play along. Amanda got away with dressing her daughter as Wonder Woman, but she considers it a small battle in a bigger war. There are princess birthday parties yet to negotiate, and play dates where preschoolers wave their wands at Cinderella. Oh, that's a good plan for success. Wait for your fairy godmother to find you. You can tell a girl all you want that it's important to be smart and self-directed, but when the third grade play is Sleeping Beauty, where the girl has to hang around waiting for the kiss of a prince to wake her up, what are you going to do? The structural problems and Me Too issues that can properly arouse fury don't appear from nowhere. There is a very real connection between bias in the workplace and the lack of parental leave in America and the damaging messages that we just shrug off. Many parents have told me that their little girl picks her own clothes, so it's not their fault if she only wants to wear a princess costume or tutu or purple frilly dress. I'd have to agree that it's not an individual parent's fault. It's all our fault. Toddlers don't come up with these ideas. Hey, boss. Yeah, it, it's the water in which we float our boats. ...themselves, and our actions have consequences. Women are trained for their submissive role from an early age, and when they start to feel power and strength rising in themselves, they've been taught to put on blue gloves and hope that it will pass. How do women get the fortitude to fight the big business of the Ariel Cinderella complex? It all comes down to power and a question of who sets the standards. Famed classicist and Cambridge professor Dame Mary Beard probably hasn't spent much time at Disney movies, but she would be able to place Ariel in a tradition of silencing women that goes back to the ancient Greeks. A few years ago, she gave a very popular lecture at the British Museum, later shown on the BBC and turned into a book, that she called, Oh, do shut up, dear. Taking the problem of women being denied the chance to speak back some 3,000 years, she described how at the very beginning of Homer's Odyssey, 
The young son Telemachus tells his mother to go up to her room and not give orders in the palace because speech will be the business of men, all men, and of me, most of all. Beard delightfully points out that there is something faintly ridiculous about this wet-behind-the-ears lad shutting up the savvy, middle-aged Penelope. But it shows that from the very start of Western culture, young men grew up learning to silence women, even their own mothers. In her mid-60s now, Beard has appeared on many BBC shows, and with her long gray hair, unpretentious looks, and strong feminist positions, she's been a target for online trolls and public attacks. Hey, Russ. She always see, fights I back. Tend to, when one tell I, I tend to see that whole thing all the way from way back from the Greeks. You know, there are, there are reasons and explanations and there are cultural norms, etc. But it's still, in, in my, in, and in the transpersonal perspective, it still boils down to the issue that we tend to think dualistically. There are superiors and inferiors. There are good guys and bad guys. And so long as that thinking is there, we're always going to find some way to, to explain it, mm-hmm. or illustrate it, or enforce it. Yeah, that's... No? Instead of just going all out, and just trying to reach your highest potential? Yeah. Exactly. Vision critic viciously attacked her physical appearance. She... But you see, but there's people who don't like that, there's people who don't like the idea, like Noah, there's people who don't like the idea of just going all out. There's also people who say... Let's not just try to go out all out and reach our highest potential. Let's just relax, kick back, and we're, we're stuck in this prison reality. Let's not go all out and, and reach our highest potential and be creative and stuff. Let's just relax and just kick back. Any thoughts? Well, see, I'm not saying one is better than the other, and there are consequences. There are consequences for both of those. Any thoughts, man? responded with a tone-perfect newspaper article. He was condescending about her looks. She could be similarly condescending about the fact that he wasn't well-educated, so thinks that he can pass off insults as wit. She pointed out that throughout history there have been men like him who are frightened of smart women who speak their minds. Beard knows that women are usually told not to engage with their attackers on Twitter or elsewhere. Let it pass rather than blowing it up even bigger. Beard won't let anything pass. And her courage and audacity always make me want to stand up and cheer. I also wish that I had just a tiny percentage of that audacity. Like so many other genius women, she made a name for herself by exceeding the standards set by men in a male-dominated field. Then she used that reputation to change the conversation and look at the odd impediments that have been in women's way. Despite Angela Merkel and Hillary Clinton and Margaret Thatcher and the much-beleaguered Theresa May... Beard says that women are still viewed as being outsiders to real power, and we have no actual template for women being in power. She jokes, at least I hope it's a joke, that when she closes her eyes and pictures a professor, she still can't even picture herself. The power structure continues to be coded as male, so when women try to achieve, they are grabbing power or smashing the glass ceiling, suggesting an attack on something they shouldn't have. Sure, things are slowly evolving, but... Hey, boss. says she is not willing to wait patiently for things to change her solution we need positions would be a change but it's also important to think about what we are trying to achieve beyond the numbers power for women has an individual connotation too and while it would be nice to finally have a woman president for each of us right now beard says that power means the ability to be effective to make a difference in the world and the right to be taken seriously the line struck me for its simple accuracy 
Even genius women who are brilliant and admired aren't always taken seriously. The ten-year-old boy who tried to explain dark energy to physicist Meg Urey didn't take her seriously. The men who tweet at Mary Beard about Roman history are treating her as an unserious woman, not one of the most esteemed professors at Cambridge. But I think it is these genius women like Beard who are our great hope for gaining power or redefining it. She herself is formidable and smart and creative. And in speaking out with wit and wisdom, she gives each of us a power base and a way to perceive our personal power that is different from the silent princess image. The Disney princesses aren't the only female stereotypes that can be sold to pleading for a smart Hey, does. Yeah, see, the whole idea is a woman can try to do that in order to achieve power or superiority or to achieve equality. Or she can do it just because she wants to fulfill it. Go for it. She wants to be in the flow. Do it for either one of those reasons. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's go to this one. Uh, you want to keep us in that one, or no? That's probably nothing more we can see in that. So the next one's uh, growing your money by Betsy Kemper. What do you think of this, right? Research is important when buying stocks. Companies making a lot of money may be smart investments. Making a profit is... So you want to tell me anything about stocks and anything you know about that? I don't know much. That's the reason why I hire somebody who knows. That's the reason why I hired uh, Hallucin to take care of the stocks for us. Yeah, uh, uh, Grandpa Cohen knew a lot about that, I think. Stocks. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Usually a good so sign. Having Companies and Dane take care of that thinking for me. Earn a profit when they take in more money than they spend. An old company may be safer than a new company. You can also watch for trends. Following trends can tell you which companies are likely to succeed. For example, many stores rented movies in the 1990s. People paid to borrow movies on tapes and DVDs. In the early 2000s, the internet became popular. New companies rented movies online. Many rental stores went out of business. People who had bought those stocks lost money. Investors could lose money if they buy stock in companies that later fail. Decision time. Your Uncle Steve works as an investor. He plans to give you $100 for your birthday. However, he says you can use it only to buy stock. You research companies and find two that look interesting. Your notes are below. Geotech. This is a computer company. The company recently hired five new people. The company is two years old. Profits have dropped slightly since last year. Is it too fast? I think I can get it. The company has not released a new product in more than a year. The stock is at $42, up from $39 a year ago. News of the day. This is a newspaper company. The company recently fired 20 people. The company is 45 years old. Profits are slightly up from last year. The company recently made a tablet app. The stock is at $21, down from $24 a year ago. Based on this information, which stock would you choose to buy? Why? Bonds. Bonds are another popular way to grow your money. There are many different kinds of bonds. They have different features, but they all work in basically the same way. Do you know about bonds and stuff? No, I couldn't. I couldn't explain it. Governments or companies sell bonds to raise money. Yeah, I'm planning to hopefully. Remember, my friend called me, wanted me to study this stuff. So I'm hopefully maybe on the like car ride and stuff. I want to plan on studying this stuff when I go to Utah or something. 
but, but if I have coronavirus, if I have coronavirus, I might have to stay here for 10 days or whatever. But, all right, ready? Yeah. For example, a government might sell bonds during a war. It needs money to buy tanks and planes. People buy bonds. After a set amount of time, you get your money back. You also get interest. With some bonds, you get the interest over time. With others, you get all the money at the end. The U.S. government made posters encouraging people to buy bonds during World War I, 1914 to 1918. Government savings bonds are an example of a safe investment. The U.S. government sells treasury bonds. After 30 years, you can get back your initial money. Until then, you receive interest every six months. It is easy to tell how safe bonds are. They are rated based on their risk. The safest bonds get a rating of AAA. The next is AA, followed by A. The least safe bonds get a D. The government also sells savings bonds. These come in smaller amounts than treasury bonds. They carry different interest rates. These interest rates can change over time. You can buy savings bonds online. Chapter 4. Other investments. So what do you think about all that? Any thoughts? Well, see, I, I think, I, I don't know for sure, but see, bonds are a way of, um, of the company or the government borrowing your money. You just give them your money, say you, say you have $10,000, and you buy a bond. In other words, you give them $10,000, they can use that and then pay you back at the end of the – when the bond is terminated. But when you invest in a company, um, you, are, you, are, you are wanting to help the company to make a profit. So that's that's the basic difference between uh, stocks and bonds. So stocks is investing in company, and the bond is just letting the government borrow your money. Yeah, or yeah. So like, I, don't know, I, I, I think I think what happens with the, with the stock right is you if you is you give the the company money, and then and then it, depending on how well they do, you get money back. If they do well, then you get more money. If they do worse, then then you lose your money. Is that the case? Yes. And with the bond, you you, yes. get, you give money you give money to the government, and if the government's doing well, it, it will give you money back like a month you know years later, and it, and it'll give you a little bit of interest on it or whatever. Yeah. Well, see, I think they guarantee. I think the government guarantees that you get your money back. Yeah. Well, let's say what happens if the government falls apart. Well, then you won't. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. So, no. so then what's what's the point of not – then why don't you always give up your money for bonds if they always will give it back with interest? Well, because the interest is so much smaller. The possibility of making a profit is – it's a much smaller profit from a bond than it is from the, poss- like, the potential of a Have you ever heard of, of war, war bonds? Yeah. So what are war bonds? Well, it's the same thing. You're just giving, you're giving the government. See, I, uh, during World War Two, people bought a lot of war bonds, which means we we loaned a lot of money to the United States government to make war. And then when, when say it was a ten-year bond, then you got your money back. But they were able to use it for ten years. Oh, so if you want to help your government, then you'll buy bonds. Yeah. So, but but then people argue though that that's like that gives governments an impetus to go to war. Like then they don't want to go to war so that they can get bonds and stuff, or you know, it does. Yeah, 
the conspiracy theorists, yes. Yeah, and I was also I was also hearing this idea that people say like that uh, that people that governments make so much money off of war that that they want to go to war. Like any thoughts there? Yeah, again, that's the conspiracy theorists. Yeah, that's right. And then so, there was a big big thing back before you were born about the the military industrial complex. See, the idea was that there was a military industrial complex and they they worked together to create wars so that they could make more money by by making uh, war machines, so airplanes, so this tanks, etc. This would be like an argument and a refutation against capitalism, right? Another way to grow your money is to invest in goods. You see, like, you know, the, the argument against capitalism in these cases would be like, okay, so what if a company is doing well? It could be selling you crap, you know, Coca-Cola. Okay, it's giving a lot of people diabetes, and it probably makes a lot of money. So what? Yeah, you make a lot of money by giving your money to Coca-Cola because it gets people addicted to the sugar and the caffeine. Well, does it help people, really? Has it helped anybody? Maybe it gave a few people some pleasure, but did it really, it just maybe got people addicted to sugar? I don't, like, any thoughts? Yeah, that's precisely what it's, see, Warren Buffett, one of the richest men in the world, he's a big stockholder in Coca-Cola, because he knows that people are going to continue buying it no matter how harmful it is, so he knows he can make money, so he he invests, he buys stock in Coca-Cola. Yeah, that's right. As with stock, the goal is to buy low and sell high. Metals, such as gold and silver, are valuable because they are rare. Unlike paper money, they can be turned... I think what's so good about Coca-Cola is, is the name. Coca-Cola, it rhymes, you know. It's it's very ple appealing name, it does. Yeah, that's true. ...into something yeah, else, such as jewelry. Even as inflation decreases the value of money, metals remain valuable. Small amounts of some goods, such as gold, can be worth huge amounts of money. How is gold different from paper money? In the 1990s, stuffed animals called Beanie Babies became wildly popular. Collectors paid hundreds of dollars for rare limited editions. Collectibles. Some people collect objects they later sell for profit. Collectors sell baseball cards, books, and classic cars. Art is a collectible too. As long as someone will pay for it, almost anything can be a collectible. Some people collect things for fun. They do so as a hobby rather than to make money. They do not plan to sell the items. They do not care if the things drop in value. Investors are different. They buy collectibles to sell them. They may enjoy the items, but their goal is making money. The risk is that no one can predict the... Hey, it does. Yeah, it's like baseball cards. See, there's some baseball cards that just one card will sell for a million and a half bucks. Yeah, I guess like, what's what's the name of that basketball player, Luka Donacic or whatever, the white guy? Quote unquote. Yeah. I guess he, he a card of his just sold for the most ever money ever on a bas basketball card, like... Like a hundred million dollars or something. Oh really? Yeah. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah. Future value of collectibles. If people lose interest in an item. I guess it was probably like a signed card, you know, sold for like a hundred million, something like that. Yeah. Kind of crazy, yeah. huh? Can you imagine someone buying that? But. I mean. Yeah, it's just it's just it's ridiculous. But but yeah, thought I mean, is is that another uh, commendation? Uh, comment what was the word commendation against uh, capitalism or 
Another distortion of capitalism, yes. Yeah, that's I mean, if I guess people say no. if it makes them happy, you know. Hey, bro. Yeah, well, see, that's all a part of this economy based on the production and distribution and marketing. Well, I guess, I guess what, I, I guess what that, I guess what that card might represent though is also like breaking free of the ego and the self, like a white a white guy doing the basketball and stuff. Like any thoughts? Maybe that's why I was so appealing. It may become less valuable. Prices and profits shrink. That makes even fewer people interested in the item. Prices drop even lower. Items that were once valuable can soon become worthless. This makes collectibles a very risky investment. Did you know? Some kids buy and sell sneakers in New York. They research which shoes are popular. Then they buy those shoes. Sometimes they even wait in line for the latest shoes to be released. They later sell the rare shoes at a higher price than they paid for them. One 12-year-old named Brandon Buscanera made $100 in just one day selling shoes. Homes are some of the most expensive investments people make. Hey, it does. No. Real estate. A type of investment known as real estate involves buying and selling homes. All right, let's go this one. TQM, or Total Quality Management, similarly aims to encourage... All right, this is that uh, history of philosophy. The study of the first ten books of Vivi's history of Rome, Ab Urba Condita. In his Machiavelli maintains his view that the aim of government is to achieve grandezza, glory, not for the prince, however, but for the state itself. This is that book uh, by A.C. Grayling, A History of Philosophy. As had happened with Rome. And to achieve glory, a state must be free, able to determine its own affairs for the benefit of all in it. Since the interests of an those ruled by a few... Tell me what you think of this, ready? ...of fortune dictate. Other Florentine political theorists, chief among them Machiavelli's friend Francesco Guicciardini, 1483-1540, were in the habit of praising Venice's constitution as the most perfect and desirable. Guicciardini's argument was that Venice had achieved a balance between the social orders in the state by combining the best features of all kinds of states, those ruled by one, those ruled by a few, and those ruled by the many. In Venice's case, the mixed constitution shared power between the doge, the senate, and the people. In response, Machiavelli changed his mind, writing another book very different in outlook from the prince. This was his Discourses, ostensibly a study of the first ten books of Livy's History of Rome, Ab Urba Condita. In it, Machiavelli maintains his view that the aim of government is to achieve grandezza. Oh, yes. Glory. Not for the prince, however, but for the state itself, as had happened with Rome. And to achieve glory, a state must be free, able to determine its own affairs for the benefit of all in it. Since the... Hey, that's... Interests of an individual prince might well not coincide with the interests of the state he rules. The best kind of state is a republic. Greatness comes to cities not through individual benefits, but through pursuit of the common good, Machiavelli now wrote. And there is no doubt that this ideal can only be achieved in republics. And he goes further, adding that when the people are the guardians of their own liberty, their liberty will be preserved more effectively than under any other form of government. In marked difference from his predecessors and contemporaries, however, Machiavelli urged that to protect its liberty, a state should arm its citizens, and accept that this might occasionally result in instability and turmoil. But that, he said, is a price worth paying for the grandezza that could come from independence and a martial spirit, as had happened with Rome. By contrast, a state such as Venice could never aspire to a similar degree of grandeur. As to the turmoil that might result from an armed and independent people, well, if the citizens achieved virtue, then the state will be well-ordered internally, and turmoil will be avoided. It does. No. A significant...
significant point of continuity with the prince is Machiavelli's insistence that the overriding aim, although in this case it is the life, liberty and security of the community, rather than, as it had been in the prince, the prince's power, must be preserved at the expense of everything else. Whenever what is at issue is the basic security of the community, no consideration should be given to questions of justice or injustice, clemency or cruelty, praiseworthiness or ignominy. Rather, setting every other feature of the situation aside, you must be prepared to follow whatever course of action will in fact save the life and preserve the liberty of the community as a whole. It does. Yeah, that's that whole idea that a community comes up with an order that the whole community depends on. And that obeying that order is it's a higher priority than making any moral or ethical decisions. What he's saying is like, you know, if everyone, if there's a bad guy in the community and killing them is going to maintain the social order, then you got to do it. I think, I think of like Jesus, you know, Machiavelli would say killing of Jesus might've been the best thing to do, you know, to maintain the order. That's well, yeah. From the, from the Romans point of view. Yes, that's for sure. Any of those, huh? But actually, it might have been the worst thing for the Romans because that was, you know, maybe if Jesus stayed alive, it would not have worked. You know, people would have gotten bored. Oh, whatever. You, you, yeah. you, you put some, you made some more bread up here. Whatever. Get out of here, buddy. You know, any thoughts? Ruthlessness recommended to the prince is thus recommended to the people if necessity demands it. Machiavelli's espousal of a frank form of realism survives to the last. Thomas More. 1478 to 1535 takes to its full extent the idea that a republic will flourish optimally if all its citizens are devoted to virtue. Virtue, not virtus. Unlike such earlier humanists as Petrarch, for whom a good state is a mean to otium, leisure, in the service of an Aristotelian life of contemplation, for the citizens of More's utopia, the end is the pursuit of virtue for his own sake. Hey, that's... Yeah, but he sees... Uh, the pursuit of virtue is a higher order than the order of the state. Yeah, well, I like the the odious's idea though. The, maybe the, his highest pursuit is the pursuit of leisure, so you can devote yourself to contemplation and philosophy. You know, any thoughts of that? And that's that, that's kind of what I was getting at yeah, with like what Noah was saying. That's that, enough. Huh? What? Yeah, that that that's another uh, order. Yeah, so like, you know, I guess it, it depends on the individual. Like there's INTPs, there's ESFJs and stuff, and for different people be different things. But like Noah was saying, instead of the idea of going all out, that kind of sometimes is counterproductive. And But, but like the idea of like, okay, just kick back like Socrates and ask questions and leisure. And, and, and yeah, maybe, you know, maybe that you are gaining the most from that, but you're not like going all out. You're, you're going in a very smooth, orderly way. Maybe like me following synchronicities listening to things and and playing with the universe playing with the cosmos and allowing uh, and absorbing the synchronicities and absorbing the miracles going around and, and and gaining more knowledge and awareness any thoughts yeah well that's going all out in that domain any thoughts on no. when everyone takes delight in individual and collective virtue it is not racked by the conspiracy of the rich pursuing their own private interests under the name and title of the Commonwealth. Public service is the noblest of callings, and more recognizes the force of a platonic view 
expressed by the character Raphael Hifliday, that the abolition of private property and a complete equality of goods would make possible the utopia he described. The view is consciously a derivative of Plato's Republic, but, perhaps not surprisingly, Moore himself ends on a note of doubt about such a complete system of communism, which he perceives is the foundation of the utopia Hitlerday describes, that is, their living in common without the use of money, by which all nobility, magnificence, splendor, and majesty, which, according to the common opinion, are the true ornaments of a nation, would be quite taken away. It does. I mean, that, that is kind of a criticism of communism, you know, then people, well, people would argue that, yeah, then people aren't going to work as hard and there's not going to be that majesty and splendor. But then at the same time, though, like I'm thinking of myself, whether I was making a million dollars or not, I still would have worked on the quadrant model probably at the same amount of speed, you know, any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, well, that's the issue. See, you don't, you don't need those kind of outside incentives in order to go for it. But also, if I was making more money, I probably would have also been playing basketball and doing a lot of other stuff that would have been helpful. And, and maybe I would have done better with the quadrant model because my, my mentality might have been more pure and stuff. But at the same time, who knows? But any thoughts on it? Who knows? He does not end by endorsing this latter view outright. He says he would himself like to see in his own country many of the things Hitler Day describes, but he leaves open which things he would not like to see. Part 3. Modern Philosophy The Rise of Modern Thought From the 4th to the 14th century CE, the increasing dominance of religion over the mind of Europe meant that philosophy was largely the handmaiden of theology, and as noted at the beginning of Part 2, it became increasingly dangerous for philosophical speculation to stray from the neighbourhood of doctrinal orthodoxies imposed by the Church. This grip was broken by the Reformation of the 16th century. Why do you think that was that that was the case at that time? Any thoughts? I don't know. It was broken not because the Reformation introduced a new intellectual liberalism, rather the opposite when you consider the inflexibilities of Calvinism, for example, but because religious authorities in most parts of Europe that became Protestant did not have the power to enforce theological orthodoxy or to control speculation and inquiry. One immediate result was, as mentioned, an outburst of interest in the occult, magic, astrology, the Kabbalah, hermeticism, alchemy, and mysticism. But in the midst of this, and arising partly out of it, there was also a liberation of philosophical and scientific inquiry. The Reformation was, famously, triggered by Martin Luther when he posted his 97 theses on the church door of Wittenberg in 1517. He was not the first to object to malpractices by the church, but he lived in the dawn of a new and powerful technology, printing. In the half-century before Luther made his protest, Gutenberg's printing press had been copied in hundreds of towns and cities across Europe, and millions of printed books had already poured from them. It was a dramatic instance of how the rapid adoption of new technologies changes history. Interest in magic, alchemy, and the other occult sciences constituted in their various ways efforts to find shortcuts to the control of nature, with a view to achieving one or all of several great desiderata, changing base metals into gold, preserving youth, attaining immortality, and predicting the future. Much nonsense followed. But it was clear to more perceptive minds that among these endeavours were possibilities for achieving greater understanding of the world. What was required to disentangle sense from nonsense was, they saw, a method. The two chief figures involved in advocating responsible methods of inquiry were Francis Bacon and René Descartes. 
these two thinkers are therefore regarded as the founders of modern philosophy. Not least because... It does. No. Right, let's go to a different one. Uh, this one's on investing, ready? It's by John Maldwin. It's called The Little Book of, of Fool's Eye Investing. A buying opportunity. Corporations churned out ever more glowing earnings projections as a reason for increasingly high valuation multiples. It worked for 18 years. Then, in the first quarter of 2000, the music stopped. It was downhill for almost the next three years. But you wouldn't have expected that if you'd kept listening to the sell-side investment community. By sell-side, I mean those firms and funds that want to manage your money. Investors are the buy-side of the transaction. Even as more than $7 trillion disappeared from equity valuations during the last two recessions, each new low was greeted as the bottom, and the brokers and mutual fund managers found ever more reason for you to give them your money today. On October 31st, 2007, the total market value of publicly traded companies around the world reached a high of $63 trillion. A year and four months later, by early March 2009, the value had dropped more than half to $28.6 trillion. Hey, it does. $34.4 trillion of lost wealth is more than the 2008 annual gross domestic product of the United States, the European Union, and Japan combined. U.S. citizens lost almost $15 trillion following the credit crisis and have recovered only about half that as of early 2012. Bear markets, we are told, don't last forever. True. The economy in 2012 is out of recession and growing. True. And thus, you should get into the market today, preferably into whatever they are selling, before the next big run-up begins. Maybe not so true. Gritting your teeth and staying in the market was precisely the right strategy for the 1980s and 1990s. It was the wrong strategy for 1966 and 1982. How can we know what strategy is right for today? Throughout this book, I use the terms secular bear market and secular bull market. They have nothing to do with religion. Although, there are people who do appear to worship bull markets, or at least... Hey, Ross? No. Oh, not yet. Do you, do you know about bull markets and bear markets? Oh, yeah. The bull market is... You're bullish. It's it's improving. The bear market is it's deteriorating. Why, why do they name it after a bear? <laughs> That's a good question. I've, I've often wondered that sacrifice a lot of money in the hope of making one appear. When economists use the term secular, it is to indicate time periods of longer length, much like the concept of generations when thinking of the lives of people. The brilliant Neil Howe, co-author of the very important book, The Fourth Turning, wrote me this note to help our understanding of secular. I pass it on to you. He wrote, The word secular does come from the Latin seculum, or plural secula. But this does not mean cycle. It means age or era. And some of the Romance languages, it has literally come to mean century. In French, cycle, or Italian, sicolo. Though in English we use another Latin-derived word that means 100, centum. Originally, the word seculum seems to have referred to the length of a long human life, and may have been borrowed by the Romans from the Etruscans. To make use of this word and concept in the fourth turning, as you may recall, we call our entire rhythm of four turnings, that is, four generations or phases of life, a full-life seculum which typically lasts 80 to 100 years. The word cycle comes from an entirely different Greek root, kyklos, which means wheel or rotation or cycle. Since 1800, there have been seven secular bull markets 
and 7. Secular bear markets, if you identify them by peaks and troughs and stock prices. The average real return in a secular bear market was barely positive, 0.3% per year. Even though the market was falling, investors still got dividends. The average annual return during a bull market cycle was 13.2%. Not coincidentally, this average... What's dividends, ain't thus? That's just, uh, just interest that you make on your investment. To the 6.7% real, after inflation, return that the Abbasan study, among many others, tells us stocks return over the long haul. If you look at bull and bear markets for the last 200 years, and not just last century, the average length of such bear markets is almost 14 years, and for bull markets, it is almost 15 years. The average complete cycle... Secular bull market, followed by secular bear market, is 28 years. If you invested for a 10-year period during a secular bear market, your real returns were quite likely close to zero. And that was with the advantage of dividends averaging 4 to 5% or more. In today's world of 2% dividend yields, or less, just staying even during a secular bear market would be a feat. Within each secular bull and bear market, there are cyclical bear and bull markets. Back eddies, if you will. They're briefer, but still are significant moves up or down that go against the secular trend. In a secular bull market, each cyclical bear market stops short of previous lows, and then the market moves on to new highs. In a secular bear market, each cyclical rally fails before it gets to the last high mark, and then the market stumbles down to even deeper levels. Sideways to down for 20 years. Now let's look at some implications of those cycles. Corporate profits grow roughly in line with real GDP plus inflation. The rate averages about 6% per year. That means profits double every 12 years. Shouldn't we expect stock prices to rise a lot? Hey, that's what we do a different way? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know enough about this to make any intelligent responses. Yeah. Clark, as his co-commander. With some 40 soldiers and civilians, including Clark's slave, York, they set out from St. Louis in the winter of 1803-04. Aboard three boats. What's this about? Well, th this one, I'm, I'm doing this one, actually. Uh, it's called Brainwash by David Perlmuter, right? Without a rope, owes some of his fearlessness to the way in which his brain fires. Turns out his amygdala doesn't activate normally. It remains relatively quiet during his sensation-seeking adventures, during which death is a real possibility. A normally functioning amygdala might well keep him away from those death-defying ledges. The amygdala is the control center of the threat response and threat interpretation system. It modulates our memories of threatening events, real or perceived. To be clear, the limbic system's hippocampus is the main memory center, but the nearby amygdala participates. These brain structures are activated following an emotional event and talk with each other in the process of memory consolidation. Hey, thus. Memories in general, whether they elicit strong emotions or not, also involve the prefrontal cortex. Interactions between the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex support the assimilation of new memories into pre-existing networks of knowledge, ultimately providing the foundation of memory consolidation and later retrieval. But the amygdala helps record real or perceived threats as well as other emotion-filled experiences so that we can recognize similar events in the future. As an example... Think of a time when you hit the car brakes as soon as your eyes detected a large object on the road. In cases like this, we rely on an instantaneous, automatic response that doesn't require conscious decision-making. This type of response is part of our survival instinct. 
David's amygdala. Several years ago, I learned an important life lesson. My wife and I had just about finished shopping at Costco. We were in line with our cart and were almost ready to check out. My wife suddenly realized that there was one last item that she had forgotten, so she went to retrieve it while I waited in line. When she returned, the fact that she had left the line must have violated some rule in the mind of the man who was waiting behind us, despite the fact that the cashier was still not ready for us. He proceeded to look at me and spew negative comments. I ignored him. Then he turned his aggression away from me and directed it to my wife. Accosting her the way he did instantly disconnected my brain from rationality and thoughtful response. I was in full attack mode when I approached him, and by the grace of God, he must have sensed it. He immediately raised his palms and backed off. Fortune. Hey, does. <laughs> that sounds interesting. So, so is, is this guy making an excuse? Is he making up reasons? Like, basically, like if if you follow if you follow his line of reasoning that we're just you know automatons of these brain structures, the amygdala and stuff, then you can justify you know. Oh, that guy, you know, this was my wife and she's my, you know, she helps me to, you know, reproduce my genes. So therefore my amygdala was, you know, hyperactive in that moment and, and I was about to fight and hey, I can't help that. This is my nature. But at the same time, he didn't have to get in, involved in that. He could have diffused it in a different way. Like, but uh, was he making excuses, justifications, his reasons or any thoughts? Sounds like he was. He's trying to be a top dog a little bit. Predator prey, maybe a little bit. Yeah, but he's he's giving credit to, and and saying that I I was I was driven, I was guided by my impulses. Or he, was, he was a slave to his amygdala. Yeah. Now, now it might be true, but at the same time, we do have a, a, a capacity to override it, and you can do that through meditation and other stuff, right? Or what? Precisely. But, you know, like, I think a lot of gangster people, like people from the hood and stuff, they, they, they will fall more back into, hey, you just talk to my wife like that, buddy? It's go time, baby. Like, and he does. Yep. Yep. And that's the dominant mode of operation at, the, at that level, and he does. Yep. I was able to regain control, and the situation was diffused. I had a lot to think about on the drive home that day. No, no. A lot of people think that that they should do that because then the wife will look at her him as a as a more worthy mate because he's protective of her and stuff. But I I would say counterintuitively, perhaps if you are just completely calm, that might be the best thing, you know. And if if it does have if it does come to the point where the guy's about to hit your wife, you can step in and you can block his punch or whatever. I don't know. You just don't need to fight him. And a lot of times, the person who who gets punched is not an innocent victim. We know that. You know that's really the case. That's the case in almost every situation. Any thoughts? Yep, you're right. So, so all, you know, you, you step in. You don't have to. You don't have to get involved in any dualistic mode of being. You can stay within a, a framework of the flow. Any thoughts there? Yeah, or or if you can't, you do what I call a soap opera blocker. You you you, you just get out of the situation. With its powerful relationship to emotion and fear, one might expect that abnormal functioning of the amygdala, resulting from developmental problems, neurotransmitter imbalance, or structural damage, might be linked to conditions such as depression, PTSD, phobias, anxiety, and impulsivity. What about that, like the PTSD and stuff like that? Any thoughts? Yeah, well, those are 
Those are very powerful causative factors. Are they excuses though? Very or? powerful. Are they excuses or? Well, they can be. Well, they can be used as such. They need to be acknowledged. They need to be. You need to be aware of them. You need to know the degree to which you're you're vulnerable to them, and and do what you need to do to protect yourself from from. Becoming a victim of them. So, so you don't want to be like Noah and completely deny the physical mechanisms. Like Noah Bigstein, he's like, like, oh, there is no physical. Okay, no, there, you know, this is a third quadrant. The third quadrant, thinking, emotion, doing, dreaming, is related to hormones and and brain structures and stuff. And the amygdala, you know, these things do have effects and stuff. But at the same time, there is capacities to override them to higher levels of functioning. Any thoughts? Precisely. And that is, in fact, the case. But here's the important lesson. The circuit in the amygdala can be hacked or altered, even in an otherwise healthy brain. And when it's tinkered with, big problems ensue. Anxiety, for example, is an amygdala-based response to something that is only perceived as being dangerous because of a previous experience. Panic attacks can occur when the amygdala is sending danger signals, even though in reality, no such danger exists. And the amygdala doesn't just play a role in mental health issues. We're going to show you how too much activation of this part of your brain can interfere with your ability to make good decisions and control your emotions. Most important, we're going to show you how to tame your amygdala so you can reclaim your life. The amygdala is a central influencer of emotion, impulsivity, and reward. An overactive amygdala is an essential part of the story that has led us to our current societal predicament. But the brain is not... It does. Yeah, well, again, these are very, that's a very powerful factor, and you need to be aware of it and, and respect that fact and do what you need to do in order to not be uh, driven and enslaved to it. And, and we want to acknowledge, okay, there's some people with PTSD and stuff, and they might have an actual, you know, something differential in their amygdala, okay? And, and, and be aware of that. And a part of being in the flow is being being conscious of your environment and that there's certain groups, certain, you know, someone grew up in the hood. He might have a hyperactive amygdala. He might have, you know, because predator, he, he was beaten and stuff, you know. So be, be con conscious of this, you know, any thoughts? Yeah, precisely. Understanding. Okay, wait, 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 I want, I want you to just, just as one real quick, uh, uh, Jason Jang's inventors, ready? Reinventors, ready? Just a little bit of this one. Okay. Advanced degrees and years of big time experience of the rules that govern the world of 20th century manufacturing. That was their Achilles heel. Innovator Charles Kettering, the longtime head of research at General Motors and a prolific inventor, had warned his industry colleagues about getting caught in this trap. An inventor, he said, is simply a fellow who doesn't take his education too seriously. In other words, inventors are engineers who can let go of their expertise and achieve what Apple's late CEO Steve Jobs called the lightness of being a beginner again. Before you can begin to embrace and implement continuous radical change and reinvention, you and or your business have to let go of the reinvention killers that will destine your attempts for failure. Letting go is hard to do. The following story illustrates just how difficult letting go can be. Certain parts of the world, especially India and parts of Asia, have a real problem with troops of marauding monkeys. These critters steal food, destroy crops, and are even responsible for having transmitted the HIV virus to the human population. 
When monkeys move from being a mere nuisance to being a full-blown threat, they have to be captured and moved. The most common method of catching monkeys has been to shoot them with tranquilizer guns, place them in crates, and move them to the wild. But monkeys are very fragile creatures, and many of them die as a result of being captured this way. In recent years, animal rights activists have forced monkey catchers to revert to a method of capture that's hundreds of years old. Here's how it works. Enlightened monkey catchers use only a bag of gourds, some string, a sharp knife, and peanuts or candy to handily capture their unsuspecting victims. Upon spotting a group of monkeys in a tree, the monkey catcher begins by tossing a few small stones or a piece of bark into the tree to scatter and isolate them. Then, moving to the base of a tree where a monkey is perched, he takes out one of the gourds, cuts it in half, hollows it out, puts the two pieces back together again, and wraps it round and round with string. Using his knife, he cuts a tiny hole in the gourd, and then, in full view of the monkey, he begins stuffing the gourd with candy or nuts. Very curious by nature, the monkey watches intently as the monkey catcher continues filling the gourd with treats. When the gourd is about half full, the monkey catcher sets it down on the ground and backs off. Sensing an opportunity, the monkey quickly scrambles down from the tree, grabs the gourd, tries to peer inside, smells something at once, and begins working its tiny hand through the tinier hole in hot pursuit of what's inside. Wrestling its hand deep into the gourd, the monkey grabs a handful of treats. However, when it tries to remove its prize-filled fist from the gourd, it can't get it out. The harder it tries, the less success it has, and eventually the monkey catcher approaches the preoccupied monkey, delivers a quick shot of a short-term tranquilizer, and places the monkey in a crate for its journey to a new home. The moral of the story is best posed in a question. What was the only thing the monkey had to do to get free? The answer, of course, is let go. But it's simply not in a monkey's DNA to let go when its little fist is stuffed with candy or nuts. Hey, does? No. Hey, wait a minute. Yeah, that's I'm a no very ch- well-known story. And you might say, well, no, of course you're not. We human beings only share... of our DNA with monkeys. And I'm guessing that the gene for not letting go is part of the DNA we have in common. Smoke jumpers share that gene. Smoke jumpers are highly trained, highly evolved elite firefighters who parachute into difficult terrain to put out wildfires. They need to have an extensive resume in remote terrain firefighting and be skilled at using the tools of the trade. They must be in excellent physical condition and possess a high degree of emotional stability and mental alertness. In the middle of the past century, 15 of the bravest smoke jumpers were battling in a deep canyon when suddenly the inferno turned and raced right at them. The men tried to retreat, scrambling up the steep walls to get away. Tragically, 12 souls were lost. Only three were able to escape. The testimony of the three survivors and a review of the scene revealed a surprising finding. Large pole axes, shovels, and 12 heavy backpacks, in all, some 115 pounds per man of professional gear, were on the ground hundreds of yards from where the smoke jumpers first turned from fighting the wildfire to race away. Only three dropped their gear early. The rest couldn't let go until it was too late. In his book, Linking Expertise and Naturalistic Decision-Making, research psychologist Gary Klein... Hey, does? No. ...explains that this is all too human. The way of illustrating is hard the to rest. let go of your, your homemade plans of protection couldn't let go until it was too late. In his book, Linking Expertise and Naturalistic Decision-Making, research psychologist Gary Klein explains that this is all too human. Those tools, he wrote, represented who those firefighters were as men. Dropping them was like abandoning their knowledge and relationships for uncertainty. It was a hard choice to make, and sadly, the majority of them will never have a second chance to learn how to make the right choice in the future. The same is true of you, me, and all of us. 
when we've got something we want in our tightly clenched hands, we'll resist like hell before letting it go. It's not possible to embrace change and reinvent a business until you're able to let go of the eight following reinvention killers. The reinvention killers. Yesterday's breadwinners. Every product or service has a natural life cycle that begins with an introduction, followed by growth, maturity, and inevitably a decline as it becomes yesterday's breadwinner. There are no exceptions. The bulk of revenues and profits of any service or product is generated during the growth and maturity phases. By the time a product, service, or process has entered the phase... Hey, does. Yeah, we've talked about that before, that every system has its sunset clause, and it serves a useful function, but it eventually, if it serves that effectively, it, it strengthens what it's... Pre- protecting and you are growing mm-hmm. all right anything else with, it, with that you want to keep listening right now or no, that's enough for now all right oh but what do you think about the idea of like they couldn't let go of their identity or something like it was tied to identity like eight thousand? yeah it's all part of who i think i am and in in the protective enclosure in which you um, uh, reside it's pretty tragic. Like they they held on to their tools. <laughs> like yeah. that's that's not something to laugh yeah, about, but true. but like they they they, they should have just let them go. And then, but like I I wonder if like I was in that situation, I wonder if I would have held on to the tools also. You know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, that's it served a useful function, and it's very very hard to let go of what can no longer serve that useful function. Any other thoughts, No. All right. Okay. I think you're about... Later.